have a dream that all men are created your first day at work like? Do you remember that day? That very, very first day that you went to work? I remember it very clearly. I was only 16 years old and I walked into the pattern shop at the foundry where I was going to do my time. It was the first time I'd ever seen a big workshop with a lot of men in it. And as I walked down the stairs into the pattern shop, I saw on the floor for the first time in my life, a pattern. It was a part of a traveling irrigator. It was a L-shaped piece of timber with all little bosses and lumps and bumps attached to it all over the place. It was probably about seven, eight hundred millimetres long and uh, it was beautiful. And I remember looking at it and going, wow, that's one of the most stunning things I've ever seen in my life. I now realise that what I was admiring was industrial art, industrial sculpture, the beautiful form that is created using not just artistic skill, in actual fact, very, very little artistic skill, but pure technical skill. This is a 19th century trade. The steam era is filled with patterns. All those locomotive engines, all of those meat grinders on the end of benches. They were all made with patterns. And a pattern, if you don't know, is a wooden version of something that is eventually going to be cast in metal. And that's my trade. And it's always been an interest for me that things like this are made. And that was an epiphany that I had. Because as I walked into the pattern shop that day, I looked at this pattern on the floor and I went, I'm going to learn how to make this. And that was it. These things are made. All these things in our lives, the TV sets, the cars, the houses, the knives and forks on your dinner table, they're not bought. They're made. Now, that's obvious as an adult, but as a 16-year-old, it had never dawned on me that things were made. I thought you went out and bought things. You bought a TV set. No, somewhere along the line, it had to be made. That has never left me, and I've always found the process of manufacturing fascinating. I love scratching around in factories and old industrial sites, looking at how things were put together. And occasionally, very occasionally, something grabs my eye and I'm taken away with it. Hello everybody, welcome back to Your Story. This is episode 63. I'm your host, Ian Kath. And I'm in Sydney at the moment, and today we're going to talk to someone who has taken an old design from the 50s and given it a new lease of life in a very special way. But first, don't forget, the site is over at yourstorypodcast.com, and you can always get an email to me by sending me an email at chat at yourstorypodcast.com. Love to hear from you, love to know what you're up to, love to know what's happening in your world. It's a Facebook fan page, just search for Your Story on Facebook and you'll find it no trouble at all. I'm very busy these days over at Create Your Life Story, doing reasonably well, getting some good download numbers, and we've got some half-moderate download numbers here at Your Story as well. But it'd be great to improve that, so if you know anybody who's interested in people's stories, this sort of thing that we're doing, long-form 
conversations with people about their lives. Share the information with them. Tell them where the site is at yourstorypodcast.com. Maybe bounce them in a little email. Find a particular story that you think that they might be interested in. We've now got 63 episodes up, so chances are there's a couple of episodes in there that everybody would be interested in. Bounce it through to them and uh, just let them know about it. You can also help by leaving a comment in iTunes or any of the other social networking systems that are out there to help share what we're doing here at Your Story. Don't forget the music is, of course, as usual, from IOTO PromoNet, which comes from IOTO Alliance. If you like the music, go and check it out. There are links at the end of the show notes for this particular episode 63. If you came across something that you liked, something that was really special, and you wanted to give it a new lease of life, and if you happen to have a passion for something, in this case, find food and coffee, what about finding something and reinvigorating it in that way? And if you want to do that, how do you go about doing it? There's an old saying, isn't there? Build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. But I've known enough product developers now over the years to know that that is hogwash. That is not the case. Maybe one in a 10,000 might have that situation, but chances are they just lucked it. Generally speaking, taking a product to market is a story of heartache and despair. And this is a story about somebody who has been bashing away at getting a product to market, dealing with all the trials and tribulations of design and manufacture, and is slowly kicking some goals with a glorious beautiful product and if you're on the site right now listening to this episode you can see it in front of you in the photos it is a stunning product that is well worth sharing with the world because it is a classic piece of industrial art that has been given a new lease of life for the 21st century ladies and gentlemen let's listen to craig's story Hello everyone, welcome back to Your Story. It's 25th of May 2011. How are you, Craig Hiram? Well, thanks, Ian. Good. Craig Hiram, let's talk about industrial design, mate, because if anybody goes to the site and has a look at some photos and maybe anything else that we might have there, they're going to have the opportunity to see a stovetop espresso machine that is something quite beautiful. One of the most stunning pieces of industrial art I've ever come across in my life and it is somewhat reminiscent of a classic from the 50s the aluminium atomic stovetop espresso maker but it's different and it's time to talk about what you've been up to in making this piece of art and uh, how you got here so we're sitting in Sydney we're sitting in your studios in Surrey Hills I'd like to ask you first of all Craig what inspired you to go down the path of making a stovetop espresso machine? Uh, I was working in film at the time. It's a pretty crazy industry and getting on a feature film is pretty exhausting. And to compound, you know, the nature of filmmaking itself, it was obviously getting quieter and there was less and less work around. So I wanted to get back into business. I had a, a roofing business for six years before I went into film, so I had a trade. So construction? Construction, yeah. But, you know, that, that wasn't lighting me up in terms of, you know, the next 20 years of my life. So doing a product was, you know, it was a project that did light me up. And I was confident that if I could do a product well, that I could sell that product. And if I could sell it, obviously, I would have a viable business. So why not a building product? 
that's the industry you've come out of. Yeah, oh, look, I, I ended up in building, you know, by default. I was, I'd started doing accounting out of school and was fed up with that and went labouring as a sort of stopgap, expecting to go back into, uh, you know, some kind of white-collar type job. Did the apprenticeship um, just to fill in a couple of years and and I could see that if I if I opened a business that there'd be money in it. And there was. I had a great lifestyle. It was fantastic. But for me, it didn't light me up, you know, working on a roof. You know, and I love people. I love being around people. And it, and it provides that for the, the quoting, you know, majority of the day is really spent standing on a hot or cold roof. So the, the idea of, of doing a product lit me up. I didn't know what I wanted to do. What I did know was that whatever it was, I wanted to do it really well. I, for two weeks, just asked every single person I came across for an idea. For ideas? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, we've all heard that... So so you didn't have this realisation. You're actually on a mission to discover something to produce. Correct. What's interesting out of that is that uh, everyone sort of says, oh, all you need is a good idea. Nine out of ten people in the street have got a good idea... And none of them are going to follow through with it. They all know they're not going to, and they will all give it to you. Mm. So good ideas are readily available. So, you know, off the back of having an Atomic for 10 years... So, being, you, so you'd been an Atomic user? Oh, yeah, huge. What, did, huge. What, what do you think of the Atomic? Oh, I love it. I mean, it's beautiful, and it was part of my lifestyle. Otto is all about paying homage to that, and Otto is all now, about... That's the first time we've used that word. Otto is this machine that you've made, isn't it? Yeah. Coming back to the idea and, and leading into explaining, a friend of mine's wife, Nikki, at about the two-week point, said to me, why don't you redo the Atomic? It's got a cult following to start with for a product. You've had one for I don't know how long, and I know you love yours as much as we love ours. They're out of production, you love food, wine, and coffee. And before she could finish speaking, you know, the light came on for me. That was absolutely the idea I've been waiting for. I know probably four or five other people who've had the same idea. Right. And I think everybody has looked around the idea and gone, we know the atomic, surely it's possible. And if they go just one step further, they go, my God, that's a hard thing to do. Because the atomic is... It's, it's basically hasn't been reproduced because it is really hard to do. Mm. It is a, a tough call. To do, yeah. So did you have that realisation when you started? I, I, I think I'm dangerously optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I think every industrial designer who wants to take a product to market is, mate. Yeah. And, you know, the first industrial designer I went to was a friend of a friend and Simon spent a year working on the project and called me one day and said, look, I'm really sorry, but my design is not manufacturable. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board. Right. So, yeah, so at the end of the first year, that, those considerations that I did not even have, um, but, yeah, that, that it was very much confirmed that this was a very difficult project. So when you started, you were looking at the Atomic, which is a cast, sandcast aluminium piece. Yep. Were you going down that path when you started, basically copying it? No. The path I was going down was all about performance. What was clear to me was that there was a machine that was beautiful that made stovetop coffee and textured milk. And I like milk coffee, and so that to me was why that was my choice. 
and I loved the fact that it looked cool and I loved the fact that there was this process and of ritual you know around using it it wasn't about making it again the same as it was it wasn't about making it out of stainless steel instead of aluminium it wasn't about copying it it was about looking to see what 60 years of technology could offer a beautiful piece in terms of bringing it closer to espresso coffee in terms of bringing it to something that could be capable of making coffee akin to what we're drinking in cafes you're living in Surrey Hills for example there's a huge foodie culture around this area and certainly the the core of the coffee culture is around espresso you know we're all influenced by our surroundings so for me it was about bringing a rebirth to what was a beautiful piece and really doing justice to it really not just knocking out something that was slightly better or that was made out of stainless instead of aluminium it was about really seeing if this thing could perform and so that was a gamble from the outset how did you set all the benchmarks for how to make a really good coffee because what the auto produces is different to what the atomic produces yes isn't it yeah i appreciate you making that observation yes. because that's that's what the project was all about, the coffee. So how did you set those benchmarks? How, um, how did you know what to go for? I didn't. While there are you know, a few significant knocks along the way, there are a couple of really lucky breaks as well. And I'll go the long way around explaining this because you know, without being thorough, it won't be a complete story. So at the phone call from, from the original fellow, it was clear to me that he wasn't the guy for the job. So I dug out the yellow pages and looked up industrial designers, picked three ads that I want and set three meetings on the same day. And the guys that I met in the middle of the day, I, I liked. That was the reason I chose to work with them. They, in retrospect, were a great choice because they were science and medical specialists. They, for example, the first year that I was working with them, successfully manufactured a machine that vaporises peroxide for the medical industry. Two other industrial design companies had failed in trying to get that product manufactured and they had succeeded. So the reason I sort of use that story is that they are very, very capable. You know, not the cheapest in town. They understand that there's stuff that they don't know. That's what was great about them. The fact that they were very realistic and very philosophical about how a process needed to be. And the first indication of that was their suggestion that the lead designer, Michael Hoppy and I, go down to Toby's estate and do a barista course. Now that had not occurred to me a year before with the first guy. The second thing they did was actually bring on Dr. Alan Wallace, who's a professor of thermodynamics with Adelaide University, who's also a steam train enthusiast. You know, so there, there could not have been... You, you, Perfect. You, yeah, exactly. And there's not too many thermodynamic professors with steam train enthusiasm around these Around, oh. yeah, backed by a second PhD in mathematical modelling. Wow. Which is also, you know, really handy for the more technical, you know, boiler code, passing boiler codes, that sort of side of things. Who are your designers? Tiller Design, who are in Roselle here in Sydney. And in all of the years, you know, that they've been going, the product they chose for the front door of their building is Otto, which for me is, is really exciting. It's a beautiful image. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't take credit for that. 
Robbie Artie, you know, the designer of the Atomic, really, that guy provided something that you look at for long enough and you get a couple of good designers. And I'm like, I've got a good eye for stuff as well. And Gloppy and I were very collaborative in knocking the edges off that and really sort of just building it into something that kind of, that went from being this beautiful kind of mad scientist's contraption to hopefully something that was just with a few sort of refinements. And, I, you know, I think the Mini is a good sort of parallel in terms of product, something that we haven't changed it. We've refined the aesthetic. That took four weeks. The brewing system took four years. And that to me... So the aesthetics took four weeks. Yep. The guts, the machinery that makes it work took four years. Yep. Wow. Yeah. People who don't know these machines, Mm -hmm. let's just clarify it. The Atomic is, like I said, a sand-cast aluminium shell Mm -hmm. that you put water into and the water travels up through a pipe internally Mm -hmm. to go through the coffee. And then once it drops below a certain level, the... uh, Water turns into steam and you can use that for frothing your milk. It's a single hollow chambered vessel that produces stovetop espresso. The Otto is an entirely different animal, isn't it? It, it is. It might look the same superficially on the outside, but it's an entirely different animal. Yeah. We built a body that encases a brewing system. The brewing system could have gone in a box because the project was really cored out of my passion for the Atomic and my passion for coffee, it really, to me, I mean, the Atomic just deserved a second life. I can't think of another product in the world that's had the following that the Atomic has had that, that didn't get a rebirth, that didn't get to be updated and upgraded and didn't have generation after generation following it, which is why I think, you know, the Mini's a great sort of example. And it's surprising, and I feel very lucky that no one beat me to it. Mm. Yeah, quite right. So how does the brewing system in the Otto work? The brewing system splits into three basic parts. The boiler, which is like a squat cylinder that bolts into the bottom of the body. Then there's a fluid delay valve that sits in the neck between the head and the boiler. The third piece is the head, which is bolted into the head of the body, which weighs, and I should weigh it again to see um, exactly how many grams it is, but it's around 300 grams of steel. And what's really important about the head is that it is independent of the body. It's also important that the body is stainless steel because stainless steel does not transmit heat or cold very well. It's not a great conductor of temperature. We've really managed to create um, an entity between the group cup and the head of of significant weight that are positioned, just like the atomic, well away from the stove element, that can really sit at a reasonably stable temperature during the two-minute extraction process. So I've digressed a little bit, and I'll come back to the three pieces, the boiler, the fluid delay valve, and the head. So the first part of the brewing process is the water heating in the boiler, expanding obviously as water does when it heats, and pushing up one of two hoses that run out of the boiler, both running up into the fluid delay valve. So the water pushes up that water hose, finds the fluid delay valve, and is actually 
forced back down into the boiler. By virtue of the fact that there are two exits from the fluid delay valve, one exit being a creep hole that just sits horizontally and allows the water to fall back horizontally down the steam hose, being the second exit from the boiler, down back into the boiler. So if you could imagine a bottle of water with two hoses that are joined 10 centimetres from, from the boiler. And this water's just going up one hose, falling down the next. Now, above that horizontal opening, there's a second opening that runs up to the hose that runs up to the head. So once the water actually has enough pressure, it can get past that horizontal hose and then push up to the head. So the water is rising up, it heats up the delay valve, and once it reaches the threshold, the valve of pressure of pressure, the valve opens. Nothing opens. <clears throat> no. 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 Okay. There are no gates or or, or, or valves. In terms of valve, um, it's an open valve. Okay. Okay. So basically, it goes to that point, and then it's allowed to flow. When it's that, once it reaches a certain a certain pressure, pressure it'll yep. actually push past that. Now that hole that I'm speaking about is calibrated within 0.1 millimetre of accuracy. So you're talking very, very, you know, very finely tuned equipment mm. that mm. this stuff is made with. And at a 0.1 mil change to the opening in our fluid delay valve, you are changing the area of the opening by 37%. I was very, very lucky to have Ian Burston come on board and, and run some flavour profiling with me. And Ian and I actually tested off-tool sample machines with valves that were actually calibrated at 1.2, 1 1.3 1 and 1 1.4. Okay, to see which worked at the optimum level. Yep. Yeah, right. Yep. Right. Now, what's really significant about what you just described there and the atomic is when the water heats up in the atomic, it just flows up the valve, up the hose. There is no restriction. There is. Is there? Yeah, and this isn't, this isn't readily observed. There is. You'll notice when you take the black knob off the back of an atomic, Yes. You'll notice there's a tiny little hole in that tube. And I'm just going to reach over, and if you can yep. just stand up with me, I'm just taking uh, your atomic, my old atomic off the bench here so I can take the black knob out, which is that noise you can hear in the background, and showing you in that hole there. Yes, I've noticed that before in mine. So that's a... That is a delay valve. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. So that actually causes the pressure to build up. Well, what happens is you've got a certain amount of pressure in the boiler and, it will and running into the hose. And will leak out of that and hole. And it'll leak out of that hole until it's pressurised enough to shoot right. past okay. it. Okay, okay. So that atomic will build to a particular threshold of pressure. Yep. It doesn't just run up as the water heats no. up when it's lukewarm, which I actually thought it did. Yeah, no. You've taken that idea and maxed it out, haven't you? Yeah, we've, we, yeah we, we really um, tested and pushed with that. And again, you know that the difference of having a single casting and then having a brewing system within a casting meant that while our delay valve is holding the water back, it is allowing steam and heat through to the head to actually preheat the head. Okay. Where the atomic will do that because the body is heating. Yes, and aluminium is a great conductor of heat. Conductor of heat. Uh, Otto is actually feeding steam through that third hose at the top that runs up to the head. It's feeding steam through that to allow water up there. Right. The water heats up and then it goes up to the fluid delay valve. Yes. It's held there for a period 
circulating and then eventually it travels past it. Yep, and up to the head, which has been primed with steam while the water's circulating through the valve and the boiler. And this is where the next point of difference and probably, well, just another significant point of difference is the grind of the coffee in the basket. Unlike any other stovetop machine, it is actually ground finer than espresso coffee. Now, I found this quite challenging. The very first video that you've seen, that the unboxing video, I just used the coffee grind size that I had in my fridge, and it happened to be a good size. It happened to work fine. Right. The next batch I went out and got ground didn't work. Right. I had to use that in my Atomic because okay. it wouldn't work in the Otto, and I then had to play around for a period of time until I got the grind size just right. right. It took a while yeah. to, to find the right grind size. To find the right grind size. And that's because the second tier of pressure that's created by the water forcing its way through the coffee will determine the flavour of the coffee. With the fluid delay valve calibrated as carefully as it is, the next control is the resistance in the basket. The resistance in the basket will come down to the dose, the grind, how coarse or fine it is, and obviously tamping and, and how firmly it's tamped. So the water finds its way up to, to the head and starts forcing its way through the coffee then pushes the machine up there to, um, you know, around six bar by the end of the extraction. What does the atomic get to? I haven't measured it, and uh, it'll be really interesting to, to measure it. But, you know, where I, where I try to be very, very careful is that Otto is not better than the atomic. It's just different. And I'm very careful not to be making comparisons and not to be seen to be making comparisons or, or in any way detracting from the knowledge that was required to be able to do what Otto's done. You know, it's almost sort of like Mini coming along and saying, oh, yeah, well, that was rubbish. Well, yeah, but they gave you the four wheels and the motor and the steering wheel that made it possible and you took that forward from there. Mm. The guys that put the space shuttle in the air would speak very highly of Apollo team and what they achieved. So it's really very important to me not to be to be describing each of the machines, but hopefully without comparing them. Well, I completely agree with you, Craig, because I'm a pattern maker by trade. And when I had a look inside the Atomic, I was blown away by the complexity of producing that as a sand casting in the 1950s. Mm. It is cutting edge technology for the era. Yeah. And it, it really is a beautiful piece of, of skilled pattern making and foundry work. And design. And design. Oh, yeah. and the design is, yeah, that's Beautiful. another element again. Yeah. What you've done is you've taken that, with respect, the design, mm. and used the technology of 21st century injection, die casting, moulding. and Lost uh, wax. Lost wax? It's a lost wax. You've done casting. this in lost wax? Yeah. Goodness. Mm. I thought it was all die cast. No, lost wax. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's it takes six hours to polish the body alone. Goodness gracious me. Now, it might be worth just explaining yeah, how well, it works. Listen, you know, this is going to be a long episode. And so sorry, people, if, you, if you're not right into uh, engineering and industrial design, you might want to just sort of skip through this. But if you're into this, I think we're going to have a great conversation today. It's a huge topic. Before we get into the actual manufacturing, yep. you've explained how it works. Is there anything to say about the milk texturing? 
Uh, there is there anything is, tricky or specific there? There is, but I will just, just finish on actual extraction. So very finely ground coffee, around 28 grams in the basket, very firmly tamped, so a lot of resistance when the water hits that. The extraction starts at around two and a half, three bar, and works its way up to around five, five and a half bar. So you're running sort of around half the pressure of a nine bar extraction. And so where you would expect a, an espresso extraction to actually pour, and we all hear the term, the rat's tail, we thought, oh, it is actually really important that it's a drip. And that shot, instead of running at around 20 seconds, runs at around 55 seconds. So it's a very long, slow shot. And people that know a lot about espresso will swear blind that it's over-extracting while it's running and look very confused when they taste it and realise that it hasn't over-extracted. I'm not a coffee expert. You know, there was a whole lot of luck in how we could refine that valve at the end of the day. By luck and accident, created a way of brewing espresso coffee that actually is different to any other method of extracting espresso and for the rest of the flavours and you know what actually is in a cup I'd rather leave that to people to come and find me um, in a tasting that I post on the uh, Facebook page Otto Espresso and come and taste it for themselves. Sure. What about the uh, milk texturing? The interesting thing about the milk texturing is that most machines particularly at this end of the domestic offering are using pumps internally to build up to that one and a half bar, that consistent one and a half bar of pressure that commercial machines run their milk steaming wands with. Instead of building up, our challenge was actually to restrict the availability of the six bar pressure that we had. We had to find how to only allow a quarter of the pressure that was within that brewing system back out of the system, which became a fairly simple process. I took a boiler lid to Pertec who were kind enough to tap it, build a copper tube and put a diesel gauge on the end of it. I then just experimented with a number of different openings in the steam nozzle. Started with two holes at one mil each, down to one at one mil, all the way back then to 0.6 of a mil, which wasn't letting enough out. Sorry, the, the two holes at one mil was letting too much out too quickly and wasn't sort of holding that one and a half bar. So we ended up at 0.9. Right, so no. you played around with different hole sizes until you got the amount of restriction you wanted yes. and delivery that was appropriate. Yeah. That explains why it's only got one hole in it. I wondered why. Yeah. I wondered why there was only one hole in the uh, yeah, texturing nozzle. Yeah, yeah, and there is one hole because that, that releases exactly a quarter of the pressure in the system, which is exactly one and a half bar. Okay, okay, understand. So this is how it works. This is where it's different. Despite the initial obviousness when you see an Atomic and an Otto sitting on a stove beside each other, these are all the differences of how it works. What about the, the design and the manufacture side of things? Mm. So the first industrial designer had, had been unable to find a way to manufacture this form. And it took that fellow a year to really sort of come to terms with that. The second group of designers worked out that they were up against a wall in about three weeks and called me in to tell me the sad news. And while we were sort of sitting in that meeting, the lead designer, Michael Hoppy, was doodling on a piece of paper and flipped the piece of paper around and looked at me and said, what if we did this? And to me, that was a breakthrough at a similar level to actually Nikki coming up with the idea in the first place to redo the Atomic because 
what Michael had shown me was going to make manufacturing possible. And what that was, was a concept of separating the boiler from the body. So up until this point in time, were you thinking within the limits of the design of the original idea, which was the atomic, of actually having the boiler as part of the body? And it was a quantum leap. See, I often think within designing, this is a problem. If you're going step by step from a previous design, you can be locked into a design modality, whereas it's an actual fact you've got to abandon it, throw it away and start afresh. Is there something in that? There is something in that. And, you know, that really is where, you know, I try to be very clear to make people aware that I'm not a designer. I'm not a professor of thermodynamics. I'm not an engineer. I'm if anything, a producer. I'm the person that was crazy enough to keep borrowing money, believing that somehow it was going to be possible. The greater minds at play, really the two heroes, the three heroes for me in this, are Michael Hoppy, who was the lead designer with Tiller Design. Of course, Alan Wallace, the professor of thermodynamics. And last and certainly not least, Doug Marshall, um, who's the manufacturing agent, who's become a very close friend of mine, who really fought and battled and was up, you know, with me writing emails. Well, let's get into the manufacturing shortly. Let's finish off the design. Okay. Because it looks like a bitch of a thing to design. Yeah, well, Michael came up with separating the boiler from the body, so all of a sudden we had something that could be cast. The next step then was to find manufacturers who could cast a body, who could cast a boiler in two parts with a gasket through the middle of it, and who could cast the head that sits up in the top of the body. So the challenges there were in the manufacturing agent's court was to find who did the casting that we would need. The design and engineering process crossed very closely, and we ran into huge problems. The prototype was going to cost $20,000 to make, and that doesn't that doesn't surprise me in the least. Right. Not at all. Okay. Yeah. Now, I um, would have thought more, to be honest. Right. Yeah. And so we chose to go straight into tooling instead of making a prototype, which was obviously a risk. A huge risk. Yeah. That did not pay off. Oh. Yeah. The tool failed. The product that came out of the tool didn't work. No. We had completely missed that hole in the tube of the atomic. We had totally missed that Robbiardi had fussed and fiddled and really considered that he didn't want warm water passing into his coffee. He knew that the head of the machine had to be hot. He knew that that water had to be bubbling and really powering through before that extraction process began. That was completely missed, which was an incredibly expensive and time-consuming mistake. We'd gone straight into tooling and spent four or five months building tooling. We received all our parts and bolted them all together and stood around the stove, tiller design in Roselle. The machine started working and warm brown water came through the group handle and into the jug. And I actually stuck my finger under the group cup and looked back at four or five guys that were standing there and just shook my head and said, what have we missed? And so obviously back to the drawing board and then realised the water had to be interrupted. That must have been gut-wrenching moment. Yeah. Just several months into this, a huge amount of work, imagine a oh, pocket so full of cash. We were probably, I would have been with Tiller Design then for about two years. I would have had a year behind me already that failed yeah. with the original designer. 
Yeah, so we were a long way into it. There was a lot of, obviously, you know, a lot of money sunk into it at that point. So why did you not prototype initially? Because I had a prototyping business because I actually saw people make this mistake of go straight, going straight to tooling. Mm. But when they went prototyping, they went three or four generations of prototypes before they went to tooling. Mm. Why didn't, was it just because the $20,000 that you saw as being an expense only and you could get it right first shot? Yeah, I was advised that chunking into that sort of money that could have been put towards tooling that it was probably going to make more sense just to put that money into tooling, that it was a very well-considered project to that point and that the risk of something being wrong was fairly low, that there would always be fine-tuning, even if we got very close to the market, wasn't going to be perfect. So you'd be able to tweak the tooling rather than having exactly. to throw it away? Exactly. Did you have to throw the tooling away? Some of it, yes. Okay. In hindsight... This is a lesson for anybody out there, maybe. In hindsight, should you have gone prototyping? Yes. You said that without even hesitating. Yeah, no, we should have. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when I called Alan to have the conversation with him, our professor of thermodynamics, he approached it very well, and his whole attitude was with me, the upset client, Craig, at the end of the day, I, like everybody else, am human. It was a mistake. And so we picked our kit up and got on with it. And within about a week, I think, Alan had invented the fluid delay valve and had it prototyped um, by his mates down in Adelaide. He sent that up. The hole at that point was, oh, I think it was 1.2 mil that we started with and started experimenting there. And then we ran into issues because we hadn't specified mating surfaces for the hosing nipples. And then, of course, because where everyone was very excited and we figured out this problem and now we had a way to interrupt the water and control the flow of the water that it was time to gear up for launch and I was flown over to Wellington by my New Zealand distributors at the time with two water features. <laughs> we put them on the stove and they just dribbled water everywhere. I did not extract a drop of coffee. Um, and it sounds tragic. Oh, it was tragic, you know. And I put the site up and I was telling people that we were just about to go into manufacturing. Yeah. We went into manufacturing about nine months later and spent nine months just pouring over issues of 0.1 mil and 0.2 degrees of diagonal surfaces meeting and the tiniest, tiniest little problems for, for just under 12 months once we'd sort of gotten to market. And also once our first design award had been won. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about manufacturing. Okay. Because that's a monster in itself. Yep. Let's yep. talk about manufacturing. How did you find a manufacturer? Did you initially look at finding somebody in Australia? Yeah, we very, I mean, the very first, the first industrial designer approached manufacturers and we were quoted around eight to $900 to make, uh, you know, for one machine to be made, you know, and in a production run of, 100, 200 machines they were going to cost, you know. Cost you yeah. eight to $900. Yeah. So to make money on that, God knows, whatever retail. Thousands. Yeah. Absolutely. So it was pretty clear that it needed to go offshore. Was the expertise here in Australia to actually manufacture it? Um, it was said to be. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know. You didn't look hard enough by sounds of it? Well, no. Because I mean, it was too expensive? It was, it was just a no-brainer. Yeah. Okay. So you had a manufacturing... Guru. Yeah, Doug Marshall is a friend of Tiller Design, 
Doug's, by the time I met Doug, I was just about sort of bowing and scraping because most problems we came up against, there was some mention of, oh, we'll ask Doug. We'll see what Doug said. So I'd, I'd heard his name mentioned for about five or six months before we met. And by that stage, concept was, was there. There were 3D drawings for most of the parts. And Doug, who'd lived in Hong Kong for 13 years, had been doing manufacturing largely in electronics for 20 years went to the people he has relationships with in China and showed them what we wanted to do and got feedback from them. So that stage of meeting with manufacturers is a time that you get a lot of feedback from those manufacturers who are sort of saying things like, yeah, well, we can make that part, but you're going to need to round that edge because we can't make a tool that we can get that part back out of if it's got that edge on it etc so that becomes a very sort of collaborative effort and of course Doug's coming back to me saying do you mind if that edge is rounded or is that a deal breaker and Tiller designer sort of advising me on whether or not it should be knocked off etc so there are four people in the mix of communication there and you can imagine thousands literally thousands of emails and phone calls by the time you get 50 or 60 parts exactly where they need to be so the manufacturing for the big pieces being the, the two parts of the boiler, the body, the head and the group cup are a process called lost wax casting. So what's, what that, that process is basically making a wax mould, pouring a ceramic over the making, wax. Making a wax pattern. A wax pattern, thank you. Pouring ceramic over the wax pattern a wax again over that ceramic and a ceramic over that. So you've got four layers, wax, ceramic, wax, ceramic. That's put in a kiln and fired, so the wax melts out and you're left with two fired skins of ceramic with a cavity between them. They're taken to a pit and the steel is hand poured into that cavity. It's put aside to cool. Then the ceramic is smashed from the casting, the casting's then put into a, a, a bead blaster and it's bead blasted. It's taken to, to knock all the sort of rougher edges off it and it's then taken to, to polishing, which quite literally is a guy sitting over a spinning wheel with a fluoro light on the wheel in all sorts of masks and earmuffs and everything else, covered in grey steel dust, basically. And each, each body is polished for six hours by one person. And the, all of the friction of the polishing heats the casting, so they're constantly needing to cool it back down again so that it doesn't twist, etc. Wow, there's that much heat generated and it's that fragile a form that it can deform. Yeah, well, that, that beautiful cast body, um, yeah, it will actually twist wow. if it gets hot enough. And, um, you, you know, you're considering things like there are, there are bolt mounts at the base that the boiler bolts to. If those bolt mounts are slightly out, by the time you put the boiler in and you've got that lid needing to fit very precisely in the opening of the body at the top, so it's probably very hard to conceive so, of. So that you get an even, so between the opening of the outer shell and the actual boiler lid, the boiler lid, that gap has to be the Perfect. same even gap all, all the way, way around. around and if there's any misalignment you're not going to get that even gap and it's going to look dodgy well and it's not going to work because you're actually going to get interference and you won't be able to close or open the cap you know something craig like i said i'm a pattern maker and i've been around a little bit of sand casting but only bronze and aluminium 
And the quality of this lost wax casting internally, where it hasn't been polished, is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Like I said, I'm amazed that it's lost wax. I thought it was all die cast. Mm. The actual boiler is lost wax also? Yes. Boilers are lost, lost wax casting. It's um, electroplated, which is a, a hygienic sort of standard. Um, and all the machining, of course, is done after the polishing and, yep. and all that bead blasting and that? Yep. yep. I actually thought it had to be die cast in order to keep the price down. I wish it was die cast because it would be a lot cheaper sure, to make if it was. Um, and I thought and for this price that you're selling these for, which is, is it still $800 Australian? Yeah. Yeah. For that price, I thought it'd have to be die cast because I thought if it was lost wax, it'd be 1500 And if I was a corporation, it would be 1500 because any other business would demand the margins that I wish I had. And it's why I'm still here in my studio with a bed at one end and my desks at the other because... The margins are really not fantastic. Most products at market are at least six times their manufactured cost at the retail costs. We're nowhere near that. Yeah, sure, I can believe that. Which is fine because it'll take longer for the company to get into profit, but it will get into profit. And when it does, the money will be used to develop other products that support making beautiful coffee and buying beautiful things and having that lovely ritual in people's lives. Sure, um, and that, more and more people are getting into that too. Yeah. yeah. We're moving away from the fast food culture into the slow food culture. Yeah, that's so, right. So there's a lot of this happening. So, okay, we've done the manufacturing. What about the taking it to market? Because the design is the fun bit. Yeah. The manufacturing is, you know, that can be fun too, but taking it to market is what breaks a lot of people yeah. in the whole product design field. And I've seen a f few people fall by the wayside at this point. Yeah. I, of course, knew the product inside out by the time we got to market. I knew that it was revolutionary, which it is, because there aren't other stovetops that I'm aware of that produce an espresso shot and texture milk perfectly. It obviously has the aesthetic appeal that it's got. I thought they would run and jump out the door and that we would not be able to keep up with demand um, because the manufacturing process is, is very slow. We launched the payment gateway, which was where you bought yours in at what I had promised to be the retail price of $600 by form of our manufacturing cost was not sustainable. So I launched the payment gateway. There was a special offer to people that had registered for two weeks to buy the machine at $600. There was a rush of sales. We sold, I think, 150 machines in the first 24 hours. Um, that must have pleased you. Yeah, well, that was really exciting, and yeah. I was fairly certain that that, that that trend would follow there on and thereafter. It really confirmed everything that I thought mm -hmm. about this being a great product to do. And then, then it was time to really sort of do the slog and go and approach retailers and start. Did you have 150 units to deliver? Yes. Right. The minimum production run is 1,000 units. Wow, so you got a, you had a thousand of these suckers made up front. Mm. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing dollars. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And fair enough, you know, the manufacturers need that quantity of scale to, to do it. To yeah. Do it. yeah. Yeah. And they've been incredibly patient. They haven't engaged in the project to make a thousand at a time. They are waiting to make five thousand at a time. That's that's what they're in it for. 
And because the marketing is so challenging, it's taking years for me to be able to place orders in that in that sort of realm. In saying that, we are about to go into our third production run. We've sold over 1,600 so far with zero marketing budget and really with me just wearing out shoe leather, just walking the streets, being in stores on Saturday mornings, making people coffee, doing um, every trade show I can and calling every roaster, every you know kitchen, high-end sort of kitchenware store that I can get my hands on and meeting with them and making them coffee. And making people coffee is what markets this machine. It's deceptive to look at it. You wouldn't believe off the bat that it would pull an espresso shot or texture milk as well as it does. And sooner or later, it'll reach that point that enough people know about it that it will, it'll gather the momentum that it is beginning to gather now. There was a period of time from when you first started promoting it and I first started seeing the information about it where it went quiet. And I waited and I waited and I waited and nothing was happening. And I was thinking, ooh, it looks like something slipped through the crack. What happened during that period? <laughs> I was buried in China. Oh, were you? <laughs> yeah, I was over there living in hotels, um, darting back and forth to Hong Kong just to sort of keep in some sort of touch with uh, the Western world. I was here writing emails until 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, just refining every last bolt, every last little piece. I mean, even injection moulding the handle on the group cup, the material is a high-density glass-filled nylon. It's the same stuff that the Danish fry pan company Scampan use, and it can be put in an oven and baked and it's not going to melt. So it's, it's a beautiful material. Anyone who knows anything about injection moulding will know that it's a great, fast, effective way of getting plastics to look and feel a certain way. But it's not a simple process. And to get that lovely scoop at the bottom of the handle and to get that imprint that your thumb fits into so comfortably at the top, there were hundreds and hundreds of emails just figuring out how it wouldn't shrink or sink or twist when it came out of the mould. And that last nine months was really when those quiet spells would have happened. And they were happening because the only guy in the company and I was buried in manufacturing issues. I've noticed also, Craig, that there's, been a, there's a bit of a competition at the moment for changing the name of Otto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just when everything seems to be good, what's happening with the uh, name? Yeah, again, this harks back to not doing things properly in the first place. And it also comes back to the age-old thing of don't trust what anyone around you is doing. Check everything. I didn't know what to check for because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have... I certainly didn't an anticipate the project getting to the scale that it has, which is flattering and exciting. But the, you know, the original designer that I went to offered a very complete service, which was designing the product, finding manufacturing, trademarking a, a trademark, trademarking a name, doing a design registration. I was advised at the time against patenting, which I have done 
now because the project actually became a lot more professional and not, and and a lot more professional and a lot more thorough at the point that I, I brought the second industrial design team on. The first step with a trademark is doing an international search. The cost of that search is $10,000. That's before you even register a mark. And so... So all you've got is an idea. All you've got is an idea. And a $10,000 debt. Yeah. And hopefully the, the answer from the $10,000 spend is, yes, that's okay, nobody else is using it. So that search wasn't done. I didn't know about it. It wasn't the project wasn't seen by by anyone at that stage as becoming international as it has. I found when we went into the international IP agencies three, four, five, five, six years after we first registered the mark in Australia that there's a large German company that have blanketed Otto Espresso um, across America and Europe. Oh. Not, sorry, not Otto Espresso, I had blanketed Otto. Otto. Those four letters in that sequence. Technically, I would be right in challenging their challenge by saying that they are inactive in the category because technically they are inactive in the stovetop coffee-making category. However, it would get buried in court and send me broke. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're a big company I can afford to. Fight you. That's right. Yeah. Are you changing the name? I am changing the name, yeah. Internationally and Australia? The whole, the whole the name across match. everything will, yeah. Okay. Without changing it everywhere, you know, you run into two different production. Yeah. So is that competition still running? I've run two competitions. One was on the Otto website that you would know about. The other was on the Otto Espresso page on Facebook. Right. You know, as you've probably sort of gathered by now, I'm a bit of a control freak and I'm very fastidious about every single little part of the product. Yeah, unfortunately, none of the names have, have really grabbed me. I've had three different names that my inner sort of circle and I have come up with, and all three of those names could potentially be challenged also. So coming up with something that's new and fresh and completely undiscovered is proving to be very, very difficult. We're about to go into production for the Hot Top, and which is a which is an induction a portable induction plate in which we've actually customized the software so that the induction coil will work with stainless steel oh okay you know there's been about a year's work um, in just finding a way to make that coil work with the stainless steel boiler so that we didn't compromise the integrity of the machine itself right so that's the next product though that's the next product, and I have to have my artwork in about three weeks for the ceramic top of that product. Which will include the name. Which will include the new name, so the, the heat's yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, I see. So it's eventuating. Craig, I got this, when I, you know, like I've had an Atomic for a few years, I love it, and then the auto turned up and I went, my God, what is this? And it's stainless, how about that? Yes, I'll get on the email list. Yes, I'll buy the $600 first in, first served. When it arrived, I was so excited, I made a little unboxing video, which you've seen. When it arrived, I was, you can see on the video, you know, and I'll actually embed it onto this post as well. I'm stunned at the quality of every aspect. You know, the carrying case that it came in, the cut foam that supports it, the instructional video where you 
actually take the group head off while, this, while it's under pressure. <laughs> I, I, I was wincing as I watched that. I yeah. thought, oh, God. So was I. Did you notice? Yes, I did, actually. <laughs> I did notice. I thought, my God, we're going to see third-degree burns here in a moment. Yeah. And luckily it didn't, but it yeah. still went... And then I brewed up my first coffee and it worked. Mm. And I was just blown away with the whole process from start to finish of receiving it and getting it. And I took it around and I showed it to friends and went, oh, ooh, isn't this wonderful? And they yeah. all went, yes, lovely. And I love it. I love it. And I love my Atomic still. And yeah. at, on the last movie I worked on, I actually took my Atomic in and I polished it up again. Oh, great. Got it into a high Beautiful. Full chrome, full polish again. Fantastic. And I had them both on my stove. Yeah, because, great. Unfortunately, because the atomic is aluminium, it does tarnish with time. Like yours is all grey. Yeah. And to have both of them sitting there, mm. 1950s design, new millennia design, yeah. in all their glory, was mm. you know, a beautiful thing. I, it's a be beautiful design and I appreciate, and I'm glad that I have the skills, both from the industrial design, the prototyping, the pattern making background, to appreciate the hard work that's gone into this. And mm. that's why I contacted you, because I could appreciate how much hard work went into this. And hopefully there are some student industrial designers out there who are listening to this, who are getting some lessons and learnings from this. And also maybe some other people who appreciate industrial design or want to take a product to market who uh, can learn from some of the things that you've been through. And would you like to say anything directly to them? Yeah, and the reason I pause is that I'm just trying to think how I could possibly jam what could be 10 minutes of dialogue into 20 seconds. Well, you've just given us a good background of what the experience has been like for you. Yeah, I would say to borrow much, much, much more money than you need to. I would say be committed to it at a level that if you have any debts like a mortgage, sell the property and get rid of it. Burn the boats and let the boat sink so that you are not getting off the island without making your own food. You can't go into it half-hearted and you will need two, three, four times as much money as you think you need. So really get... And time? And time. Really get yourself into a position that you don't have any obligations, be they social, be they financial, before you start because it's exhausting and any pressure that you have on yourself will compound the challenges that you you will absolutely face. And Do you think it, without that level of commitment, don't even start? No, because you're going to spend a whole bunch of money and then you're going to pack it up. And if you're not prepared to go into more and more and more money, and if you're not prepared to really trust that what you're doing is right, and if you're not listening to the people around you who you trust, who are advising you to make changes for the commercial outcome of the product then yeah you, you, you're going to be in all sorts of problems because industrial designers have done it before and the older blokes that have been in business for years and launched products will tell you stuff that one day you'll turn around and think wow he was right I thought it was going to be easier for me I didn't think I was going to go through that but I did and be prepared that the very last stretch the nine months that you speak about with things going very quiet and not very much news going out from the website, that last six or nine months is excruciating because it's when you're really weighed down with debt. It's when the interest payments on the four credit cards that I had maxed 
you know, were costing me hundreds of dollars a week. And it's really when you have to keep your act together and you are the hero of your team and you have to be cool with everyone. You can't go freaking out at the people around you. Yeah, just really try and anticipate the worst would be would be my advice. And make sure you've got a product that's gonna be well received. Don't go off because you love it, assuming that everybody else will. Craig, thank you very much. Wonderful story. And uh, it's a wonderful product. I love it. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for... Thanks for bringing it into my life and the life of everybody out there who loves Otto. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a privilege to to have, you know, to to be recognised for the work because I think there are so many people out there that have done similar levels of work and been through similar levels of pain that I have that haven't had just those couple of lucky breaks in there that got it over the line because for all the knockbacks, there have been a couple of lucky breaks as well. Mm. Mm. Well, it's a great product. I wish you the very best and I hope it's an outrageous success for you and I hope you make a fortune and travel the world promoting it and everybody will think you'll be an overnight success. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. So. thanks, Ian. Thanks for uh, taking the interest. Uh, pleasure, Craig. All the best, mate. Thank you. Bye-bye.